Well, we are in our third week of our sermon series entitled Make the Bible Great Again, operating under this assurance that this book is still very real for us, very relevant for us, very radically inclusive for us if we dare to be challenged and enlivened by it. The first week we explored the creation story. I'll give you a little bit um, of the background of where we have moved thus far. We explored the creation story and trudged through the waters of the flood and and discovered that all of scripture, all of scripture is this long romantic comedy of connection and disconnection and reconnection, and that the question that kind of just hangs for us is, will God and humanity get back together? Then we um, explored Abraham's story last week, specifically around the sacrifice of Isaac, and wrestled with how humanity stays connected to God in the midst of the most painful, in the midst of the most impossible circumstances in life. And then we discovered that this connection is built on this familial thing, this familial mutual trust, and that faith is following God into the unknown for no other reason but for the fact that it is God asking you to follow. That's faith. We've been diving into these family stories. That's part of the privilege of being in family, right? Diving into these family stories. You get access to the family stories. And I don't just mean the public stories. I mean those other stories. The public stories are like our family is from downtown or our family were founding members of First Church of whatever. No, I mean the other stories. The stories behind those stories. Those stories usually come out on vacation, right? Night two, when Uncle Billy has had way too much to drink, <laughs> and he, get, he lets you in on that family story. Yeah, our, our family's from downtown, that's true. Ever wonder how we got there? Your grandfather kicked him out of the house. Your great-granddaddy kicked him off the farm. and He had to go downtown, and he was homeless, and he had to start all over again. Those kind of stories, those, those big stories. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, our family, mm-hmm, we were founding members of First Church of whatever. That's true, but you ever wonder how we became Methodist? First Methodist Church was the only church that would give your grandparents a shotgun wedding. You, you do the math. <laughs> Part of the privilege of being in family is that you get access to these kind of stories, not just the public stories, but the stories behind the stories. And God's family is no different. We've got our family stories that we tell everybody And then if you stick around long enough in a place like this, you get access to the story behind the story. Moses is one of those stories. We've got the public story we tell about Moses. You know Moses, right? That pillar of faith, the leader of this grand exodus. Moses, the man who stood up to Pharaoh, who told the world where it could go. Moses, Charlton Heston, (laughs) bronze, tanned, chiseled with a big stick in his hand, that kind of Moses. 
That's the story we tell people. But then there's the other story. There's the story behind the story. And we heard it this morning. Moses, the baby, born into slavery. The Hebrew people have been slaves for 400 years in Egypt by the time we get to the second chapter of Exodus. Exodus, by the way, if you didn't know, is the most central story in the Bible. Exodus is the foundational story for every other scripture, including the story of Jesus. Watch Jesus' life. It mirrors the Exodus. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 nights, and he comes back out of the wilderness and has this grand showdown with the powers that be. Exodus is this foundational story, and we are now in the first part of this foundational story, Chapter 2, this is pre-Charlton Heston. Moses is a baby. The Egyptians have been enslaving Israelites for 400 years. Jewish carpenters built the pyramids. Herod thinks there's beginning to be too many of them. Sound familiar? He might have a slave revolt on his hands, and so he decides to wipe out an entire generation of Hebrews, commanding the murder of every male Hebrew child two years of age and younger. Moses' mother finds out she's pregnant in the midst of this. She has the child in secrecy. She nurses him in the quiet of the night and tries to keep him a secret. But you know, kids, they eventually grow up a bit and they get squirmy and they get a little louder and finally she can't hide him in the brush anymore. Until finally she weaves this basket and decides that her child will be safer on the river than he will be in her hands. And in the quiet of the morning, she lets him go float among the reeds. Now you heard the rest of the story this morning. Pharaoh's daughter comes out to take a bath, finds the child floating along the river, and in this ironic twist of biblical proportions, only this stuff happens in the Bible, decides that Moses' mother should be the child's wet nurse. Moses' mother is invited into the palace, and now she's getting paid to take care of the child she thought she had lost forever. This is the foundational story for every salvation story in Scripture. This is the well from which all the roots of the rest of the biblical narrative draw. And here's the story behind the story. Here's the dirty little secret. Moses is not the hero. Moses has very little to do with this story. And we hold him up. Like I said, bronzed and chiseled and tan, booming voice, green screen. But the truth of the matter, family, is that the real story is that your great-granddaddy Moses was just a helpless baby. He was almost dead until through an act of grace he was drawn out of the water. That's why the early church always read this story when they moved to the baptismal font. 
This was the story that they read every time they baptized someone because they heard the story behind the story. That being wrapped up in the movements of God is not about being some person of super faith. It's not about having your act all together. It's not about being bronzed and chiseled with a staff or being a strong leader of any type. Frankly, it's about being as helpless as a baby. You've got very little to do with the movements of God in your own life. The early church heard the story behind the story and they recognized the truth in their own story. That left to our own devices, we would never, never on our own seek reconnection and reconciliation with God. We would never seek connection and reconciliation with our neighbors if left to our own devices. We would, we would continue to cause war. We would make hell on earth if left alone. We're not the hero of the story. The story behind the story of salvation is that God is moving towards us. God is grasping us. God is drawing us out to make us more than we would ever be if left to our own devices. That's the dirty little secret. And Christians are not folks who have it all together, who know five simple steps to better parenting or financial freedom or fill in the blank. Christians are people who have been swept up by a God who meets them, not because of who they are, but who God is. That's why the church baptizes babies, teenagers, adults, and all those in between. We do not differentiate in this church. This is one of the big questions new people who come into the life of Kingstown ask me, who maybe came from other traditions where they didn't baptize infants. We baptize infants in addition to adults and teenagers and all those in between, because we see in that baby the story behind the story. We see ourselves helpless, clueless, yet gripped by grace. It's the story behind the story that has been told, that has to be told if we're going to be building a new generation of people who have a heart for God, If we're going to be building a new kind of church in this community, it's the story behind the story that we have to tell. This is why our stories are so important. This is why sharing our stories of grace and of God is important because one of the keys to growing a new kind of church or one of the keys to to building up a new generation of people who will serve God is telling them the story. If they don't know the story, what do they have? And I mean the real story. The story behind the story, and not just Moses' story, but your story. Being willing to share with the next generation and the evolving community of saints and skeptics the ways God's grace has met you, has gripped you, has changed you, is the vocation of being a Christian. It's what it means to be a disciple right now. And I'm convinced that the 70% or so of the next generation that will step out of church, graduate from high school, go to college, shrug their shoulders and say, "Uh, this isn't for me anymore. I'm convinced it's because our churches, much less our households, 
are not conversant in conversion. We don't know the story. We don't share the story. We've lost the vocabulary of how God's grace has gripped us, changed us each day. If the only sermon your friends hear is from the pastor on Christmas and Easter, and the only sermon our kids hear is from their Sunday school teacher, then we've lost the battle, right? Do we know our story? Do we know the story behind the story? Those points of struggle, those points of grace, do, do you know the story? And do the people with whom you live and work and love and play, do they know your story? Just so I'm not accused of not practicing what I preach, I thought I'd share with you a little bit of my story. People wonder why I do this. You see me up here for an hour on Sunday wearing something like this, and you wonder, what's the story behind the story? My story began when I was dropped off on the front porch of a Pentecostal church in February of 1992. I was six years old. My parents have always, always, as long as I can remember, had a complicated relationship with the church. They, they were skeptical of institutional religion um, before it was cool to be skeptical of institutional religion. Though they didn't attend church with me, they were nostalgically confident in the value of the church to educate children. And so they dropped me off, and they just kept dropping me off on the porch every Sunday night for this vibrant children's program. And so my parents instilled in me this fondness for the church, but it was that little Pentecostal church that taught me how to worship the God who I began to know pursued me, loved me, longed for me, and not just me, but my parents too who stayed away. When I was about eight years old, I guess, somebody at church said something about inviting Jesus into your heart. And it seemed really important to them. And so I went home that day and I prayed for Jesus to move into my heart as an eight-year-old. And I imagined, what I imagined was someone looking like my Ken doll with two suitcases, literally moving himself into my heart. (laughs) It's silly and it's embarrassing, but I have to tell you, God has honored that naive childlike prayer. At age 13, I went to the pastor at that point in time and I asked, I asked him if he would baptize me at 13 years old. And this was without any prodding from my parents or without any prodding from the pastor. Um, and when I, was, when I was plunged under the waters and the words of grace were, were spoken over me and whispered in my ear, I just couldn't shake what God was doing in my heart and in my life. And through baptism, through, through that childhood naivety that began, began in that moment where Ken Dahl is moving into my heart, God took up residence in me. And I can't evict him. 
I tried, believe me. And then at age 15, I ended up leading this Bible study at my high school, and I, I, don't, I don't know how this happened. And so I visit my, my youth pastor in his office to ask for a set of curriculum, and somehow in that moment, maybe I wanted to impress him, maybe, but it was the first time I ever spoke the words, I think I'm called to ministry. And he looked at me, and there are so many things he could have said. But he said, I tell you what, forget about that. Forget it. Just forget it altogether. And if you can forget about it, then go do just about anything else. (laughs) Completely forget about it. But if you can't shake this thing, then I guess it's what you got to do. And so I grew up trying to shake this thing, trying to shake the call to ministry, but also trying to shake my baptismal vocation, that grace into which I had been plunged. I grew up trying to shake it, shake it off of me. I grew up and I sung in choirs and I was in pageants and I filled my life to overflowing with beautiful friendships and boyfriends and Friday night football games and I went to college and the weekends were fun (laughs) and I continued to expand my circle and I met my husband and I made the best of friends and I became a teacher and the people in my life were genuinely good people educators and church-going people, but they were not particularly concerned with helping me remember who I was. They didn't care about the story. (laughs) They didn't care who I was, who God had claimed me to be. And so I woke up one Sunday, hungover and hungry, trying to decide whether I would go to church that day or, like, get some smothered and covered at Waffle House and... I thought maybe, maybe I was hungry for something else. So I snuck into the back row of my Methodist church that I attended off and on nearly 30 minutes late, and something changed me. For the first time in a few years of attending, I relinquished control. I relinquished control for this church to grab me, for God to grab me. They reminded me of my baptism. They reminded me of who I was. They reminded me of what I was called to do, called to give my life to this grace that had been poured out into my life. They reminded me of the family story. My pastor, who also happened to be my aunt, reminded me of that story. She began to share with me the story behind her story. She reminded me of who I was and spoke life into my, into my life and And Chris encouraged me to go to seminary, and I got to Duke, and I started to read about what Augustine calls the hound of heaven, this sort of tenacious pursuit, this relentless presence in your life. And then I I read about Teresa of Avila, who, who calls God the divine lover, this person who takes up residence in us and loves the hell out of us. And, and then I read C.S. Lewis about God's tenacious grace, the kind of grace that hunts you down, the kind of grace that fishes for you until you're on the hook. And it's like I knew it. I knew that grace for myself. I had been chased by that hound 
I've had that divine lover take up residence inside of me. I'm on the hook. At the end of the day, the story behind the story in my life is that God is tenaciously pursuing me, relentlessly chasing me, and I can't shake God. I've tried, often, daily. The story behind the story for me is that it isn't about me. My salvation didn't begin the day I decided to walk up the aisle and make a profession of faith. My salvation begins and ends in the God who is loving me to death, like Moses. What's the story behind your story? What is your story? What is your encounter with grace? Because Moses isn't the only story we have. We have stories like David and Mary and Ruth. Which story looks and feels like your story? Do you know that story? Are you conversant in conversion? Because that's what's going to save the church. Deuteronomy 6 is like John 3.16 for the Jewish people. It's their hallmark text. And it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. You know the rest of it. But then it goes on to say this, and we never read this part. Talk about this at home. Talk about this with your children. Talk about this with your friends. Talk about it when you're around table together and when you're away. Talk about it when you're on the road. Make this conversation the subject of your lives. What's your story? Is it one of doubt, of grace, of redemption? Do people know your story? Because you may be the only sacred text they ever read. In a few minutes, we're going to move to the font. And we're going to start this whole sacred dance again. And I'm going to ask Robin and Naomi some questions as we receive them into membership. And couched within those questions is merely this. Are you willing to tell the story? Is this story going to be the subject, the center of your life, so that it shapes the hearts and minds of the people around you? In other words, do you know your story well enough? That's what we ask. Then I'm going to turn to you all, the church, and I'm going to ask if you're willing to do the same to be prayerfully reflective on your story of conversion such that it is resonating in everything that you do and say so that it gets to define you. Make that story the subject, the meat of your life so that it captures the hearts and minds and imaginations of all those you meet. I'm going to ask you if you're willing to do that. And I hope you say yes to Naomi, and to Robin, and to us, and to God. And then we're going to turn to this font right here. 
And Robin and Naomi are going to try really hard, really hard to remember. To remember their baptism many years ago. To remember the current of grace sweeping them into the story of salvation. And then we're going to listen. We're going to listen very carefully because in the middle of all those questions, and in the middle of all that chatter, if you listen just right, you'll hear a third voice. That voice echoing off the waters among the reeds. Some call him the hound of heaven. Some call him the divine lover. Some call him the fisher of men. That voice chasing us, pursuing us, tracking us down, calling us out, meeting us at the font, and invites us into newness of life all over again. It invites even you. Whether you've drawn close or have stayed away, whether you have traversed these waters before, or whether you're skeptical of their ripples, listen for that voice and be swept up into the grace of God all over again. Because that's the story behind the story.